0: Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. I'm Dan Permack, and today we're deviating from our regular format to bring you a conversation with former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, who was the very first Democrat to announce his candidacy for the 2020 presidential nomination. He's also a former healthcare and financial services CEO, and we discuss everything from education to universal healthcare to tech monopolies right after
1: this. The Equity Fund Resources Group at Bridge Bank is a central hub for the venture capital and private equity communities. Offering banking services for funds, partners, and their portfolio companies, Bridge Bank's financial solutions are designed for the entire innovation ecosystem and include creative credit solutions, robust treasury and cash management capabilities, and a suite of international banking products. Bridge Bank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely.
0: We're joined now by former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, who is running for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. So, Congressman, let's just start here with the kind of top level. What's the one reason that Democratic primary voters should pull the lever for you over the other kind of dozen, couple dozen of other candidates? So one reason, huh? Just give me the best reason, the top reason.
2: I'm the best person to beat Trump. Why? Because I'm a moderate and can build a big tent party. And that's how we beat
0: them. Let's talk about a couple of the things you've talked about so far on the trail. And and you've kind of been all over Iowa since announcing over a year ago. And one of the things uh, you've talked about is kind of education and the need for a national, you called it apprenticeship program as an alternative to four year college for those who don't want to or maybe can't afford four year college. And and it's something we've heard about a little bit from the current White House. In your vision, is this something that would be managed and paid for by the private sector or by the federal government?
2: Well, Well, first of all, it's not an alternative. I wouldn't frame it that way way. Because what it is is a national service program that every high school graduate would have an option of doing, not mandatory. But I'd want to make it so exciting that most would want to do it. And it can include military service, community service. We're rolling out a new things around a climate core to help uh, really address sustainability and then a big national infrastructure component. So it'd be an exciting program. The young people join and it would be paid for through a combination of public and private funding sources, meaning the whole program itself would be funded by the government and managed by the government because it is a national service program offered by the federal government. But I view kind of philanthropic support as being a big part of kind of, for lack of a better term, local chapters in different communities where housing and compensation for the young people who do national service could be funded by a very large national kind of philanthropic effort as well.
0: Kind of an extension or an expansion, rather, of what we currently have with Americorps. Is that kind of your thinking of it?
2: That's right. But really, on a grand scale, that it's something that gets wired into the DNA of the country that. Every high school graduate will have an opportunity to serve their country, and there'll be a lot of benefits to them if they do it, and uh, I think an enormous number of benefits to uh, our country as a whole if uh, we do it, right? And it's kind of part of my, the theme of my campaign, which is we have to start bringing this country back together again because the central issue is how terribly divided we are. And we have to get back to to solving problems, right? The American people are dealing with a lot of things, and the federal government's largely been on the sidelines and hasn't been getting anything done that really makes a difference in their lives.
0: And to that point, you talk a lot about bipartisanship and and kind of how it is a means to an end. And you talk about some of the bipartisan legislation that you co-sponsored or helped work on while you were in Congress. And one of those things you talk about is opportunity zones, which is something that actually got put into the tax bill. Part of it did, at least. Can you talk a bit about the opportunity zones, because there has been some criticism, particularly over the past year, that the application of it, that what we're often seeing is investors basically going into more affluent parts of cities, not the disadvantaged parts that it was originally intended to be for.
2: Listen, they haven't really launched yet. So I think We should generally be reserving judgment on them. And in the legislation, governors were given discretion to draw these opportunity zones. And they were supposed to draw them around areas that were truly in economic need. That was the whole point of the bill that I helped draft. So we'll have to see when these things all get rolled out.
0: You've seen the applications, though. Do you think governors are, they might be living to the letter of the law, but are they living to the spirit of it?
2: You know, listen, it's a big country and there's been a lot of opportunity zones. Do I think there'll be some that were probably not allocated appropriately? Of course. But I haven't like gone through every single application, so I I can't speak intelligently about whether 90 percent of them are appropriate or 80 percent or 95 percent. The bottom line is the cost of doing nothing is not nothing. And I think we have to move to the politics of progress as opposed to the politics of, like, nitpicking or scab picking. And what I mean by that is we actually have to start getting things done. And I think the Opportunity Zone is a transformative step forward into helping these communities. A lot more has to be done, and I've got a bigger agenda to help these communities than just the Opportunity Zones. And Congress should do its job, which it didn't do on the Affordable Care Act and it didn't do on other big pieces of legislation, is you roll something out that's designed to make a difference. You shouldn't presume that you get it right the first day you do it. And then you should be back working and legislating and fixing and tweaking and improving.
0: You just mentioned the Affordable Care Act. So, and let me ask, particularly somebody who used to be the CEO of a health care organization. You've said, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, that you are in the U.S. You are for universal health care, but not for Medicare for all. What's the distinction?
2: Universal health care means that everyone gets health care as a right of citizenship. Medicare for All, as drafted in the Senate, right? Because when I say Medicare for All, I'm always referencing this specific bill in the Senate, effectively means the government is the only payer of healthcare. And I think that's a problem. And I think it's a problem for a couple of reasons. Number one, the American people want options. We don't want a one-size-fits-all government-only solution. Secondly, there's ample evidence and really overwhelming evidence to suggest that the government never pays enough for healthcare. So I travel around this country and the number one issue that I hear about in many communities is how Medicaid rates are too low. And they're right. Medicaid only pays 80% of costs. Medicare only pays 95% of costs. Those are the two government programs and commercial insurance pays 115 to 120% of costs. So there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that if the government were the only payer that it would never pay enough. So the problem with a single payer framework, if you will, which is effectively what the Medicare for All bill is in the Senate, it would lead to a system, in my judgment, unless suddenly everything changed and suddenly the government became a really good payer. It would lead to a future in healthcare where quality and access is diminished. So I favor a universal healthcare system that's a mixed model, kind of very similar to places like Germany, for example, where you have lots of plans But there's effectively a government backstop where everyone gets it as a right.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong about this, too. And as part of that, on the first part, you would want to separate private insurance from employment, correct, or from employers?
2: Well, I wouldn't want to separate it uh, because I think employers could still help, but I would want the deductibility to basically go away. And there's a reason for that, right? If everyone got health care as a right and you had a basic government plan, so let's say my system was intact and you show up at Axios, you'd have a basic government plan that would effectively be like your major medical and your basic benefits. But Axios may want to provide you with more bells and whistles or more options. So they would negotiate a group supplemental plan for their employees to effectively purchase into. And, you know, you would probably do that. And that would be a relatively small price because your major medical would be covered by your government plan. And you'd end up with something very similar to what you have right now.
0: Different issues. Do you believe the big, big tech companies, so we're thinking here, Amazon, Facebook, Google, et cetera, does there need to be a look at breaking them up? Are they monopolists?
2: Well, I think they are engaged in monopolistic activities whether in certain ways, because look, we haven't updated the Clayton and Sherman Act, which are our core antitrust laws, really in forever.
0: So is that something that President Delaney would push for, updating those laws?
2: I absolutely would, right? Because I think there's two examples, both in technology and in agribusinesses. And the reason I'm focused on agribusinesses, I just got out of rural America rolling out my heartland fair deal. And you see where there's been tremendous kind of vertical integration as opposed to horizontal integration, which is what a lot of our antitrust laws were designed for. And this vertical inter- integration is stifling competition, in my judgment. In many ways, it's hurting our citizens. That doesn't mean you lead to a breakup of these companies. I'm not calling for them to be broken up. I believe in the
0: rule of law. But you're calling for a law that could lead to them be broken up, correct?
2: Well, it could or it couldn't, but that's not the, the goal of updating these laws. Is not like me sitting here saying they should be broken up. What I want to do is protect our consumers, protect our citizens, and ensure that there's competition in these markets. I don't have an end goal of breaking up any company, right? Because in some ways, that's a lawless kind of statement, right? Because unless you have laws that say these companies should be broken up, then you're just kind of claiming the government has rights that it doesn't have. So what I'm very specifically calling for is a very significant update of our antitrust laws to reflect the nature of business today and to reflect protections on consumers and to reflect competition in markets where the nature of the way companies behave is different. Now, privacy really has nothing to do with this issue, right? Privacy is a separate issue. And it really relates to more basic consumer protections aside from antitrust.
0: Congressman, final question for you. Our current president, the the one you say you think you would be best equipped to, to take on, was a CEO before coming to office. You were a CEO of two companies uh, prior to becoming a congressman. What's the reason why America should elect another former CEO as president?
2: Well, I think my business record compared to his is vastly different, right? You know, I think good business leaders invest in their communities, pay their bills, hire the best and the brightest, and conduct themselves in a way where there are positive citizens in their community. And my two companies, which I started from scratch, exhibited those attributes and were given lots of awards, including from the Obama administration, for that kind of activity. His businesses did not, you know, do any of those things, right? I started my businesses from scratch, right? I was a blue-collar kid, You know, my dad didn't give me a couple hundred million dollars, so I think I just have a fundamentally very different business track record. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm someone who started things from scratch. That's what we need more of of this country. He's a promoter. But I've also had the kind of experience that you need to really be the president of the United States. I mean, he walked into the Oval Office having never done government service you know, so I I think I have a very different moral compass. I think about capitalism in terms of making it more just. I believe strongly in capitalism. It's the greatest innovation and job creation machine ever. But I also believe strongly in social programs and building societal infrastructure to make it more just. And I think my track record in business is vastly different than what he did. And the way I conducted myself in business creates, you know, is an example of the type of leader I'll be as president.
1: Congressman John Delaney, 2020 presidential candidate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Equity Fund Resource Group at Bridge Bank is a central hub for the venture capital and private equity communities. Leveraging nearly two decades of expertise delivering solutions to emerging technology and growth companies, Bridge Bank now offers services for funds, SBICs, and general partners including creative credit solutions, robust treasury management capabilities, and a suite of international banking services. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. And we're done.
0: Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Ferret Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another ProRata podcast.